1: And the one that, like, really tore me up was, of course, that they closed the theatres.
2: This is composer Connor Mitchell.
1: Like, I couldn't actually believe that happened.
2: <laughs> in, in, you mean in the restoration period?
1: Yeah, it during the plagues. I thought, oh, well, this is ridiculous. This is obviously an urban legend, but, you know, clearly they did. When they closed them here, it was, you know, it, that was the big seismic thing for me, when everything shut down, and the link to that great plague, and I thought, oh God, here we go again.
2: Oppressed with many calamities, and languishing to death under the burden of a long, and for aught we know, an everlasting restraint... We, the comedians, tragedians, and actors of all sorts and sizes, to you, great Phoebus, and you, sacred sisters, the sole patronesses of our distressed calling, do we in all humility present this, our humble and lamentable complaint, by whose intercession to those powers who confined us to silence, we hope to be restored to our pristine honour and employment." That's a quote from a 17th century pamphlet entitled The Actors' Remonstrance or Complaint for the Silencing of Their Profession and the Banishment from Their Several Playhouses. It was written in 1643. The actors and playwrights of the 16th and 17th century were extremely familiar with unpredictable outbreaks of plague and the enforced closure of their theatres. In this instance, it's actually not a plague that these particular actors are in fact appealing, but a theatre ban introduced by the new Puritan Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell in 1642. At the time of their writing this complaint, these particular actors had been out of work for a year. It's hard to read this and not to sense the eerie familiarity of history repeating itself. This is Ghost Shows, a series produced by Freelancers Make Theatre Work and Curtain Call. I'm Adele Thomas, a freelance opera director. In March 2020, I was making a show that was cancelled when the pandemic forced the closure of theatres across the world. So I started this series talking to freelancers about their ghost shows. The shows that were conceived, programmed, even rehearsed last year, but were closed when the pandemic hit. And increasingly, I found myself talking about the ghost year that we have all lived through. Our very own play gear. This is the final episode in the series. I had hoped this episode would be a document of our glorious restoration, but instead we find ourselves in a very similar situation to these 17th century actors. We're still waiting for our pristine honour and employment to be restored. 2021 had felt like a beacon of hope, and the new year promised the restart we were all waiting for. But as the year ticked over, shows programmed for the new year, for spring, for summer, even well into the future, started to feel uncertain, then impossible, and inevitably, they have been cancelled too. I am now haunted by a whole programme of ghost shows. Some were fully formed and cast and ready to go into rehearsal. Some were just half-formed ideas, gut feelings bursting with potential. Now they waft around my house like spectres. According to government guidelines, supposedly theatres will be able to reopen in a few weeks. But the closer we get to reopening, how likely is it that we will get what our theatrical ancestors were longing for? Restoration.
3: The weird way that we structure our lives around calendars and time, you know, we're yeah. all convinced now yeah. that there's a one on the end instead of a zero, we're all back to normal. You know, Absolutely. and I think because of the rightfully the sort of the positivity around the, the vaccine stuff. But, you know, you've seen that it's not a cure-all and and I've seen that firsthand here, how it's not a cure-all.
2: Alan Clayton is an opera singer. He's actually a tenor. He's speaking to me from Madrid, where he's rehearsing a new production of Benjamin Britten's opera Peter Grimes. Okay.
3: As long as I've been singing, since the age of about 8, nine, 10, I've been mm-hmm. singing music by Benjamin Britton, the composer. Arguably the best British opera of the last however many years. But certainly at the time of it's, its composition in, in 1945, it was the best opera since dido and Aeneas in, yeah. in the 18th century so, or, or 17th mm-hmm. century. It's a big thing in British music. It's a big thing if you're a British tenor.
2: Alan was making his role debut as the eponymous lead.
3: Following on from uh, Peter Pears, who was... Britain's partner and who sung all the sort of lead tenor roles in his operas. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's, it just sort of stands out as a big thing in, in my career and, and I love the music. The music is absolutely wicked.
2: In March last year, Alan had been in tech rehearsal at the Royal Opera House, working on a new production of Janufa by the Czech composer Janáček.
3: It was the first time I'd done a Czech opera. So I was, you know, singing in, in a completely new language for the first time. And I'd never sung Janacek in in opera before, so oh,
4: wow. a
3: lot of the prep was trying to sound not uh, trying to sound <laughs> as, as natural as possible in a language I don't speak or understand.
2: And then, along with the rest of the cast and crew, Alan found out via social media that the show wasn't going ahead.
3: The day after I found out we, we were closing um, last March, I woke up the next morning with with most of a bottle of Lafroig next to me, and Ooh. and realised this was not a sustainable way to continue in the next few months. <laughs> No, I wasn't productive at all. People were asking me to do some online things and take part in some some singing, some songs, stuff like that. And even projects that I normally I would I'd be so gutted that I didn't have the time for, or that I would be desperate to to do, yeah. I was just said, "I'm really sorry, I've got no no energy or, or will to do it at the moment." And I think a lot of that was to do with not having had a break in a long time, but also there was an unhealthy sort of vibe underneath, which was more to do with the plug being pulled from my from my life and and not and I'm certainly not someone who for whom singing is is my life or anything but I guess you know because of who I am and, and the the way I've grown up it's it's sort of it has become a massive part of my personality and my existence so it's it was like you know it was like losing three limbs.
2: So after a long year 2021 came into view and Alan was preparing to go into rehearsal for Peter Grimes. It was shaping up to be a major new production, directed by the legendary Deborah Warner and featuring a predominantly British cast.
3: This has been in my diary for a few years and it's one I've been Mm. really excited about. And as the new year approached and as we got closer to January, the more we weren't sure if it was going to happen, it was really up in the air. So that added to the sense of, well, if that goes, then F it all. I'm giving it all up. (laughs) Um, Because it's all... You know, it, it was such a big beacon in my life pre-pandemic, that mm. to lose it at this stage, having not, you know, having not worked and stuff like that, was was going to be really tricky. So I found, I found, I think that was part of being in the hole was was um, was having even more uncertainty hanging over what I was doing.
2: And COVID wasn't the only uncertainty hanging over the company.
3: Yeah, it was awful because we had to. I mean, awful. It, it's awful for everyone and trying to trying to work through Brexit at the moment. And yeah. you know, I was, I was looking at the. this great diagram of of the journey of a pork chop from (laughs) Britain to Paris. And beforehand it was one document, sort of two minutes and that was it. And now it's, 10, 12 man hours of documents and, oh uh, man. And it is similar for us, you know, we had to go to the Spanish consulate in London, visa service place, take all these forms, surrendering your passport for two weeks, certified, the travel insurance, letters from accountants, proof of tax being paid, medical insurance, traveling to London during a pandemic, three months of bank statements, the best part of four 500 quid. Pre-Brexit would have been absolutely nothing. There'd have been none of that whatsoever. And, you know, when, and then when it got to the, when it got to the airport was even worse, um, because, half, well, the, fir- the first five people from the technical team to try and fly out got turned away from Heathrow. And so we were all sitting in, in a deserted standstill hoping that when we got to the Spanish border in, in Madrid that they would let us through. And we had to show all these documents, proof. We had had letters from the Spanish government, from the city of Madrid, from the Minister of Culture in Spain, God. personally signed letters saying that we were allowed in because we were doing this you know, landmark production at, and it was a big sort of cultural event and stuff like this. The most worrying thing for me is that in future, and this isn't hypothetical because it will happen, that this is a a British piece with primarily British cast, most Mm. of whom were flying from Britain. If it hadn't been the case that this was a a piece of English or British opera, the house wouldn't have gone to that effort and those lengths to to get us there. If this had been a piece of of Italian or German or French opera, they could have got anybody from across the continent. And that's what's going to happen increasingly if the restrictions stay in place for British musicians to tour and travel and perform and work freely. Yeah, it was a nightmare. If it had been a month earlier, we'd have been so much happier. And then we got here and we're all singing in masks, which is the first thing, and it's absolutely hellish. You know, trying to communicate. I I don't know what half the cast looks like at this show because I've never seen their mouths. And you know, you're trying, you're trying to act opposite people. Oh, really? It's absolutely horrendous. And so we've had all these restrictions, and and you know, the house has been great. And you you go in, and there's temperature checks at the door, and there's disinfectant everywhere. You have to change your mask as soon as you enter the theatre. And I'd say everyone's wearing a mask throughout. You have to wear a mask in the street in in Madrid. And yet, we've had case after case after case, including people who've been vaccinated. They had one of the vaccinations wow. before they left the UK. been a real eye-opener to me about what's gonna you know what's likely to happen as restrictions ease in the uk you know and it makes me really worried you know that even with the the highest restrictions in place as soon as you have you know we've got a chorus of 60 i think Mm. plus 20 actors and then 12 members of the cast plus production team uh, music staff all this i think the main problem is that as soon as you've got Large amounts of people going home and mixing with their normal, you know, their family and their normal routine, then COVID runs rampant, regardless of of uh, vaccination.
2: So last week you were mm. put, put on pause.
3: We've been losing cast members on and off for the last month, and about uh, ten days in, the first person went down, and then a couple more, and so we've now had half the cast. So six of 12, I think, have had have <gasps> had it, or have got it. The problem we've got is that there were no understudies. Mm. So that meant that we could rehearse very few scenes. Um, and there are people who've, who've been off work now for, for three weeks or over three weeks, even though they're absolutely fine. They never had any symptoms anyway. Uh-huh. We've had our premiere pushback twice now. And we've lost one of the performances. We're supposed to do 10 performances. We've got nine now. We still don't know when the shows will be. We're Mm. hoping to open in, I think, three weeks today, maybe. Wow. Um, Which is two weeks later than it should have been.
2: It must also have crossed your mind that the show might not happen at all. Of
3: course. Especially, I mean, it's ironic because we're almost exactly at the, you know, (laughs) we've just gone past the year's anniversary of it happening last year.
2: How do you feel at the moment? Having- oh, horrible!
3: <laughs> just I've had a week. I've had a week on my own in in my apartment because we. So last Monday we we were all due to to start up again after a few days off because uh, we've had these sort of mini like, two three days off and to try and keep things down. And eventually the house just said, "Look, we need a we need a week's fire break." So we all went back to our apartments, and and it's it's really weird, like. Being locked down at home is very different to being locked down in an apartment that you've rented in a foreign city yeah. with only what you can carry in a suitcase. Because, you know, you haven't got all the distractions that you might have at home. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, I've been climbing the walls last week. And also, you know, because the way the apartments are in, in where I'm staying, it's it's all really close. You can hear what everyone's doing. So I haven't felt like I could sing at all here. That's the other thing, you know, not singing for a week and, and all this. So, anyway, we'll see. No, it's just,
1: it's, it's the long-term nature of it. I mean... I'm trying to tell the guys and um, the musicians that, that I'm working with that, you know, we need to start planning for this into 2022.
2: Despite assurances that the world is about to go back to normal, Connor's caution is the thing that's ringing in my ears. We're being told that we're restarting, but why don't we feel it?
5: I think because we thought it would be over. And I think it's that thing of you've had this hope on the horizon, you know they're really firing through the vaccines and the world's starting to open up and there's talks of theatres coming back and additions are picking up again but I think everyone expected to already be 10 steps ahead of where we are now. This is actor Lauren Grace. Talking about the exhaustion that's where it comes from it's that thing of like just one more month one more month Like, you got this. And then another month hits and it's like, ah, we're going to push this back. (laughs) And it is, it's really hard to keep that mentality going and, yeah, not drive yourself crazy. A young actor at the beginning of her career, only a few years out of drama
2: school, Lauren found herself at the start of the pandemic in urgent need of work.
5: (laughs) In all honesty, it wasn't really a decision. It was more, I desperately needed a job last summer and just couldn't get work anywhere. And there was one place that was urgently looking for workers. Someone had said that the NHS were desperately looking for people for different things. One of them was processing COVID tests. And then they called me one day and were like, can you start on Wednesday? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, (laughs) okay." (laughs) And that was it. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience, to say the least. They would tell you the percentage rates each week of how many tests, like say it's like one in five are coming back positive. Sometimes it'd be one in 10. So you would know the the risk of infection at the busiest time, which was Christmas, which was really, really rough. Um, one of the days we processed 48,000 in our 10-hour shift. I remember we got sent a photo of rooms stacked with tests there was just they were, we were trying to get them sent to other labs as well because there was just that many of them so yeah it became it just became about numbers all those numbers are people you switch off but you can't because you need to make sure that you're doing it right and you know you're sat for nine hours in one of these machines just life after life, like unbag in a box and trying not to make any mistakes or cause any problems. And, you know, the energy of the people around you, you're all in this lab together and you can't hug anyone. You can't comfort people the same way that you would want to. And I think being an actor, the kind of human being that I am, I found that really hard. Having to switch off that empathy towards my colleagues, and it not being a discussion, it kind of just being an unspoken sadness in there. There was times when you would just feel—I mean, you would—you would just feel this kind of overwhelming anger, and then having no one to blame for it. Um, because it's—it's crazy because it's these test tubes of this see-through liquid chemical and a swab and that's it that's the virus (laughs) that's it it's that tiny little thing and you go how does this thing cause so much turmoil this tiny little thing in my hand (laughs) and I think there was always that constant thought in the back of my head of I wouldn't be here if it wasn't because of this like I wouldn't be in this working environment, I wouldn't be in this PPE. You start to just go around in circles in your head. It didn't seem real as well. Cause I was like, I'm not qualified to be doing this. Like I, like what? Like yeah. why am I working in a lab? You felt like you were in a time warp. Like the days and the hours, like it just you felt like you were in that lab forever, like, it, it just never ended, the hours just seemed to drag on. But then at the same time, they would go so quickly. It was really strange. It was like, you stepped into another world. And I guess for me, I was literally stepping into another world. Sometimes it would be like completely silent. If you went in and everyone was upstairs and there was no deliveries coming in, it's just an empty hall. It's just complete silence. And then in the lab, it's just the rustling of PPE. You you kind of felt like you were always walking with a glass shield in front of your face. But yeah, just, I think, just imagine like a very heavy air. I think the air felt heavy because despite everything else, we all knew why we were there. And we'd all lost the things that we had. And we were all trying to cope with the things that we were trying to cope with. Um. Yeah. And it's it's funny because it could be so noisy, but there was there was just always a silence there. Something in there. Um. And the PP as well, that that heat. I was really struggling with anxiety towards the end, like that feeling, it was just like that trapped sensation. It's not the actual PPE, it's more the the outside world of, again, we know why we're here. And there's no escaping that. I think that's what made the days that were really hard, I think that's what made it hard was the last thing you wanted to face was COVID it was my job. I struggled a lot with long Covid symptoms afterwards. Um, and then along with that came just serious deterioration with my mental health as well just because I just didn't feel like myself at all and I was also doing this job that I felt, as I said, a fraud in. <laughs> this, this, I was living another life that wasn't mine. It was starkly striking. That
2: Lauren's colleagues all had one thing in common.
5: The people that I was working with, you know, they're they're trained just recent graduates from like law degrees or economics. Some have come from labouring backgrounds.
2: The one thing that connected them all was that they were really young.
5: The majority of the people in there are definitely under the age of 25, all in a similar situation of graduated in the midst of uh, lockdown and there's nowhere for them to go. It's never not felt apocalyptic either. It's the thing we've watched in films for years. It's, it's a reality and mm. I think that's the hardest part to get your head around. I, I don't know about you, but it's almost like I'm almost scared to, like, go out in the world again. It's a cruel paradox.
2: We've waited a year to go back to reclaim our old lives, our passion. We fought to get theatres open and now, at the point of restarting, the whole industry feels deflated. Last year, I felt so desperate to come back to work, but now, why do I feel like I've run out of steam just as we're about to open?
3: It was really hard to get started again. It's been quite unnerving since because it's been, it's quite. I've been even though I've been lucky than most, it's been so stop start. The stuff I've had, yeah. you know, before I started on this current job, I had two months of nothing. Then it felt, it felt like I was sort of diving back into the hole a bit
2: the truth is i feel like half the person that i was when lockdown started my brain feels contracted my expectations of life feel so shrunken
5: yeah there's definitely an exhaustion there um it's been a year of keeping that positivity and you know like going okay this is another stopping zone but we can figure out how to get round it and then we move on and then another one hits and then another one hits.
2: The idea that I have to reclaim this identity that I had before just feels unreal.
5: I went through that period where I really lost myself and it was quite scary. It was quite terrifying.
3: I was really worried about what that was going to do with my singing and whether I was going to get back into bad habits and, and just stop singing completely. So yeah, for me having three or four months off, when I started again, I was sort of (laughs) <laughs> you know, I felt like a I felt like a distant tractor rumbling around rather than a singer it was it was a wasn't a nice noise
2: after a year of being habituated to being at home like a domestic pet, I'm scared to get back in the ring,
5: yeah, because it's the thing you want most, but also the, the whole thought is terrifying. It's like we're learning to walk again
3: and uh, the whole time I've been curious
4: to know how we're going to come back.
2: This is director Clint Dyer.
4: The idea that we're, you know, yeah, I just want to go back to normal. And it's like, really? You think we can go back to normal? After what we've just gone through, you just want to do the same thing
6: again? No, exactly, come on,
4: yeah. <laughs> I mean, how how, how would he be able to countenance that? I mean, that's just incredible. Um, And yeah, you know, it, The the saddest truth is we we might do.
2: When the actors of the 17th century went back to work after nearly two decades of theatre closures and austerity, there were major changes. Charles II returned from exile in France, and while he was there, he'd picked up some continental tastes that changed the course of English theatre. Chief amongst them was that for the first time, women were allowed to act on stage. Now, whatever salacious reasons motivated that change, ultimately, the new way of making theatre bulldozed the old way with its boy players and the dense poetry of the outdoor playhouses. The question for us now is, can we go back to what we had before?
7: I think on some level this pandemic has shown... It's a bit like when you realise your parents are mortal.
2: Director Autry Banerjee.
7: Or like sort of when you realise that um, The Wizard of Oz is just a short man behind a green screen. Like, you realise that the power structures that hold up our society are so flimsy and so frail that it, bec- it becomes your responsibility to challenge things that don't feel right for the, for the general community or for yourself. And I hope that the thing that comes out of it is that people do value their own needs and do value their own whether that's mental health, whether that's caring responsibility, whatever that, whatever it might be that they don't let themselves be buffeted by a system that um, doesn't look out for them
2: And maybe not just looking out for people but possibly even actively exploiting them, as Alan says
3: If we're sick or there's a global pandemic or the, all those normal things um or a meteor hits we don't get paid and you know in the case of being sick it's even more frustrating because you know, there's, no, there's nothing you can do about it the mm-hmm. house aren't contracted to pay you anything to help you financially and of course you've paid out in advance if you're abroad you know you've paid out for a flat you've paid for flights you've paid for yeah, of five six weeks living costs all these things i was really hopeful that this might lead to some sort of discussion about uh, about the way the payment is structured for opera professionals and it, not just singers. I have to say, you know, I've got friends who work in in tech and makeup who mm-hmm. have been, have been absolutely hung out to dry this year because they're, they're paid as seasonal workers and things like that. So it's, it's, it's not just singers. It's, it's the whole ecosystem of opera.
2: And do you think those conversations are happening?
3: No, not at all. Of course not. <laughs> in general, the opera houses have always had the power and I, I suppose they always will do because of the places that produce the work. But so often the people who put things on are considered last so that, you know, either the performers or the, the people working behind the scenes to make it happen. They're the last mm. people to be contacted about these things. It's almost as though we're an afterthought a lot of the time. For me, that would be a, a great thing to start to talk about to change
7: there's been all this talk of structural change and and whether that's in, like, anti-racist um, structural change or whatever it might be. And it'll be interesting to see how much of that carries through. And I, I want to stay optimistic, but I do think it falls to each and every one of us who build up the base rather than necessarily expecting things to change at the top. It's going to be a huge fight. Playwright Roy Williams... It really is. And um, I sensed that over the last year.
8: Mm. That's, oh, really, game on. They really don't want to let go of their privilege. All right, well, from my perspective, as someone who's been in the industry a fair old time now, God bless it. And this Um, is actor Sharon D.
2: Clarke.
8: Change is something that we've been asking for from time. It never seems as if it's coming. And, you know, when I talk to... Younger actresses than me who are going through exactly the same problems that I went through when I was coming up. I can't be heartened by that. It's just like I feel that from that standpoint, nothing has moved on. I mean, I'm hoping there's going to be change. I know there's common people often saying, "Oh, we want things to go back to normal," and I say, "Yeah, well, you know, to a point. I don't want everything back back to where it was. I want to see change, particularly in our industry, because let's face it." Um, I think we're going to lose a lot of people.
1: Weirdly, do you know what that actually reminded me of?
2: Here's composer Connor Mitchell again. It reminded
1: me of all those Broadway musicals that will never be written because of AIDS. I know that that's, you know, like a hyper-emotional kind of tangent, but it, it did actually feel like that. I always look back at the 80s and go, God, there were so many huge broadway kind of canon musicals that just never happened because the workforce died and in a strange way one of the things i think about coronavirus is during the downfall of donald trump there was actually a huge kind of renaissance about to hit in the arts and i could sort of see it happening online and a huge amount of people were creating work and it's it's all it's all gone
2: the last year has left an open wound in our industry It has laid bare the inequity between theatres and their workforce and the rupture has just been left to fester. After a year of no work, no support, no firm plans for reopening, we've hemorrhaged skilled workers, the technicians, the creatives in the industry, especially those who are young and especially those who are working class. and, And because we're not back to normal, we can't see the scale of that loss yet. No wonder returning to work feels so exhausting. It's like returning home to find that your house has been vandalised. If a restoration means going back to what we had before, then maybe a restoration is not what we need at
9: all. It's got to just be the beginning of something better because it wasn't good the way it was. Yeah. And I feel like those first few months after the theatre closed was such a, I mean, it was just a kind of embodiment of that, wasn't it?
2: When lockdown started, with no one looking after the roads and no humans pacing up and down the pavements, nature came back with an unbelievable speed, even to our urban centres. The ground started cracking open as delicate green shoots pushed through the concrete. Maybe that's a sign for what's beginning to happen in the theatre industry too.
9: It has been pretty extraordinary, to be honest, because I really did not see this coming. (laughs) I mean... Um,
2: In spring 2020, (laughs) Maria had been curating a season of European works called Project Europa for the Royal Shakespeare Company. The whole programme was cancelled in its entirety when lockdown started.
9: And I think in those first few months, I I would say, uh, Mm. after the show, the season was cancelled, there's no sense of being able to save any of it or like taking anything from it because the thing that it was supposed to be it won't be and okay. so you kind you need to grieve <laughs> like you need to grieve that yeah. <laughs> you need to say goodbye to that and that's really painful and that would have been one version of the story you know that would have been one version of the narrative but actually knowing what i know now and having gone through this whole year it was as it turned out it was a comma I started trying to uh, see if I could uh, construct a sort of international co-production structure to to keep the shows alive. And I think because of the extremity of the situation, I was able to have conversations with people that I might not otherwise have been able to have. And while I was having those chats, it was summer and things were were changing, and I, I realized that actually... I had always thought that that I would be making international work, watching the industry really struggle with the structure that we have created uh, with big organizations and uh, freelancers existing sort of at the periphery fighting for the crumbs. I realized that what I really should be doing was setting up a company and taking on these shows and producing them myself. And so that's what I that's what I did. <laughs> and so I set up a company called Project Europa at the end of last year. And that's been completely brilliant. It's been a really fantastic process of, of creativity. Foolishly, I had never realized how much... You know, how much of an act of creation it is to do something like that. I kind of thought, the act of creation is what happens in the rehearsal room. That's where we make stuff. That's where the art happens. I don't really think that anymore, you know, because the process of setting this company up and doing thinking about what it is for and, you know, who's involved in it and what kind of work I really want to make now and in five years time has been completely brilliant and, you know, a lifesaver in many ways, but also incredibly creatively satisfying.
2: I think it's really exciting that you have made a statement that you know you can do at least some of that work without relying on big organizations to to kind of do the work for you which I think exactly um it's really liberating isn't it
9: yeah it feels it feels uh it feels really hopeful and that's uh you know that's good at this point (laughs) why
2: waste a good pandemic at the end of the day
9: you know what I mean? At least now I've got something to show for it. Yes,
2: exactly. <laughs> What's so brilliant about this is that Maria is absolutely resisting the pull of restoration. Particularly in this country, we have an irresistible, irrepressible drive to preserve the old, to reconstruct the fragments, and we ignore the radical forces that brought these things into existence in the first place. What we need now is not a reinstatement of the old. The leaders, the stories, the infrastructure of the past, they may not be the leaders and the stories and the infrastructure we need now. Maybe what we need is not a restoration at all, but something closer to a rebirth. Maybe what we need is a renaissance. Do you think the industry has got the flexibility in it now to accommodate artists better in the future?
9: It's interesting, isn't it, what we mean by industry? Because just then, you separating them out as being two separate things. There's the industry and then there's the artists. Actually, we are the industry. The building-based organisations are not the industry. It's us. We make it, you know, just just like we make up society. If we manage to kind of redistribute the funding that exists in a way that supports the shift in thinking that I believe is happening... Then I think that could potentially be very exciting, you know. It's just a very useful process to question what it is you're saving and what what about that is worth holding on to and what's not, you know.
1: Yeah, and isn't that isn't that a nice little reminder of the cyclical nature of of societies? I mean, I think there's a positive in that as well. You know, a it's reminded of us of the fragility of what we do, but it has been such a kick up the ass.
2: This is Conor Mitchell again and he's seen a parallel between the democratising and civic efforts that followed World War II and where we are now.
1: You know, my grandmother, who was a riveter in Harland and Wolf in Belfast, went to see these plays in the Opera House in Belfast. Um, and I am a direct descendant of that engagement with text and literature. And if you look at the flurry of activity that came out not only of the war, but the impact that that had in the theatre sector of the 1960s and 70s, and these glorious moments in British theatre of the democratization of the working class voice, uh, and all of the stuff that we're seeing now about the rise again of the upper middle class and how you know, let's be frank, you know, the majority of people in London theatre are called you know Rupert or Rufus, and, you know that that kind of universe. I feel that that is fallout of us now being the grandchildren, or great-grandchildren of that generation, so it's diluting. It's getting weaker and weaker, and I think we're now at a homeopathic moment where there's very little memory of that glorious generation. You can even see the fold back in the, you know, these 1960s brutalist buildings, you know, the National Theatre included, that are the inheritors of that national drive to democratise the arts. Weirdly, I think coronavirus may, in a sense, drive us slightly back to that. While I don't think we'll see the benefit of that immediately, what we definitely will see, and I'm totally convinced of this, there have to be. 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds out there who are saying for the past year, they've, they've got their writing a little bit online, they've got some people to help with it, they've got some actors involved, and they've really started their process. They haven't felt that they need to send their play to somewhere. They haven't felt that they need their music to, you know, they haven't tried to send it to an orchestra. They've just put the song online or they've just started writing or they've started making their own work and that will light a fuse that will explode I'm absolutely convinced within a decade. I find that incredibly hopeful allowing those you know new voices to come through and you know fucking smashing the system, which is what artists are supposed to be doing.
2: Yeah yeah, yeah. will we emerge from this moment capable of the pure idealism that it takes to realize this beautiful, democratising idea. That all comes back to the most important and central force in theatre, which I'll let director Emma Baggett explain.
10: It's audiences, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? We are talking about people who give their hard-earned cash to us, to to a a venue, and make a kind of commitment to the contract coming to see a piece of work. So the only missing piece of the puzzle at the moment is our audiences. Our imaginations are still there. The plays are still being written. Plays still exist on shelves. We can't be together and our audiences are missing. And I think for me certainly, and I think for lots and lots of venues and and for the industry, I hope we have realised how important our audience is.
1: I'm still encountering musicians who haven't worked since March. But on every occasion... Because they're theatre people, I have seen a resourcefulness that, you know, I, I, I thought had gone. I see an optimism and an absolute willingness to get that goddamn audience back in their seats.
2: And playwright Rona Monroe senses that the audience will have a voracious appetite to get back to theatre as well. And I choose to believe people are going to crave anything live. So it's like any story in a live form. We've all done every box set there is, so I think people are desperate to get back and see live actors. I really believe that. I'm with you on that. I know people keep saying that there's going to be a lot of fear, but I just think that everyone's going to want to lick each other as soon as we're allowed to.
9: Don't you? (laughs) Yes!
2: (laughs) A study by University College London showed that when audiences sit together to watch a piece of theatre, their heartbeats sync up. Isn't that extraordinary? After a year of watching each other through windows, standing two metres apart from each other, I can't think of anything more intimate, more healing, more profound than sitting in the dark together with a group of strangers and sharing a heartbeat.
7: It's a bit of a therapy session. Like, it's really interesting looking back on it. I'm like, wow, that that was just a big time in all of our lives. That was...
10: It really was. It was that shift of a new normality and even now it still doesn't feel that normal but at least now it feels routine. Here's Autry Banerjee again
2: and he's talking with actor Ruby Mae Martinwood.
10: I think my perspective has has changed before you know I did value the process of our work as in like the auditions the the work you do behind the scenes the character development the the train journeys, all of that sort of stuff, I did value it, but I I did live for that ten percent of the thrill, the thrill of that performance, that, you know, that that end goal, um, and I think this year has definitely made me realise how important the idea that you know the journey is. So the journey is your life. The journey is all you have. Right now is literally all you have. The future and the past is complete storytelling. As much as this year has been so hard, and especially I know a lot of people have struggled financially and also with their mental health, I think in a very odd way, this year I think I actually really, really needed. And for my head, I think it's actually been one of the the best years of my life. I don't know why I keep saying this to people and they keep going, you've lost your marbles, Um, but, I I think it's given me time to live more presently, I suppose, and try not to focus on things that may or may not come in the future, because you don't know what's going to happen. What Ruby May says about this
2: year is really interesting. She's the first person I spoke to who isn't pushing forward to the future. When I started making this episode, I was frantically looking for a piece by Shakespeare where he directly talked about the plague, and I couldn't find anything. There's the odd reference to a plague on both your houses and the use of the word pox as a curse, but there were no monologues about it, no, no plays set in the play, no great descriptive passages of characters living through what it was like to be in quarantine. And I might have found that really strange until I lived through a pandemic of my own. And now I totally understand why. As we're living through this, we're already trying to forget it. We're so fixated on lamenting the past and getting back to normal that we're not truly present in the chrysalis state that we find ourselves in, in which our bones are dissolving and our DNA is changing. Right now, it feels deeply strange that one day we will have moved on And all of this will have been utterly forgotten. So maybe a rebirth is not quite enough somehow. Maybe a rebirth doesn't adequately describe where we go next. Because how can we be reborn? If maybe what we're going through is a far deeper, more radical change.
1: I'm now starting to see a flourish of creativity that uh, has come about with that. And so... When we know what that new world is, and once we deal with how fragile production is, we'll be okay.
2: So, when I first reached out to Connor, I was planning on talking to him about an opera that he'd been composing when the pandemic hit. But instead, I found myself getting sucked into the story of another of Connor's shows, a show that actually opened in Belfast way before the pandemic called Abomination.
1: It was supposed to go to the South Bank Centre and it was this glorious, like, moment that we had this this amazing thing that we thought was, you know, we were going to take this out there and it just all vanished. So that actual opera dealt with perceived hate speech from the ruling party in Northern Ireland, which is the Democratic Unionist Party. You know, for context, they are the party that were standing outside the gates, uh, Asking people not to vote and sign up for the Good Friday Agreement. They were a fringe party in the 1980s and 90s led by Ian Paisley, who were a very reactionary, um, deeply Christian, right wing political party that, you know, always existed on the fringes and were incredibly hard line. And this weird paradox happened during the peace process where the fringe parties. Um, of Sinn Féin and the DUP replaced mainstream politics. People actually polarized to such an extent that those extremes became the mainstream. So suddenly a party that had these deeply fundamentalist Christian views or, and perspectives on everything they touch in politics became the dominant political party in Northern Ireland. So there was this back catalog <laughs> you know of rhetoric that they've had since the 1980s up to the present day about gay rights and um, on many other issues as well including abortion reform and women's rights um in northern ireland we are so used to that rhetoric members of parliament openly calling gay men puffs and perverts uh sentences like aids is proof that homosexual practice is the curse of god openly saying this you know blaming hurricanes on gay men you know saying that lesbians are taking over the world you know these strange sentences in northern ireland we've kind of just got used to it there were a series of events around that time where you know northern ireland has the highest suicide rate in europe a lot of gay men take their own lives um there's a huge amount of uh, homophobic violence. And I felt that there was a deep correlation between the freedom that politicians had to say this out loud without fear of repercussion um and the treatment of the gay community in Northern Ireland.
2: So Connor took this hate speech. And, as so many people in the gay community have done before, he reclaimed it.
1: I thought opera would <laughs> save the world. <laughs> so, I felt the way the way to really to deal with this issue, if that's what we wanted to do, was to take a completely artistic approach to this and not to write something that was just, you know, instantly damning of them, but to take their own words and use it as the as a form of a libretto. It was one of those rare moments where you know, you have a germ of a little idea and actually the theatrical experiment of taking quite toxic language and putting a kind of beautiful Streisian in places, melody over the top, was such a strong, I thought, musical and theatrical experiment that I thought that would carry it through. As I kind of got into the bones of it, I just had to go for broke and I thought, look, that's this has ceased to become an artistic experiment and has now become social activism. And there was such an uphill battle to get that show on um we were told don't put the word dup in it because no one wants to say anything about the dup and one thing worse than a dup or an opera is an opera about the (laughs) dup and you know we didn't get funding we were turned down i fought tooth and nail i stitched them all together to get little pots of money a co-producer came on board the theater wanted to cancel us we were put in a studio space got back onto the main stage it was an uphill struggle the whole way and this was all under the spectre of will the first minister of northern ireland um, come in and just shut us down or will there be protests outside and it became the fastest selling work in the history of that theatre and i always thought that it was going to be this tiny little thing that would you know be a sideways little piece of art in northern ireland and it took on this huge life, I think because there's an appetite to, um, to challenge. I'm not a great fan of ornamentalism in art, uh, and I think when art is on point and is really engaged with the society that pays for it, then it has a greater shot of succeeding and that work to me was very very much of its society and was a subsidized work paid for by that society and i felt that that society was itching to make its voice heard on these rights when we created it the the emotion was just tangible in the room and as we were in rehearsal gay marriage was enforced in northern ireland and like it was literally enforced by stormont so we had this piece of work and we had the attention of the wider markets, you know, from Dublin and from London and from Edinburgh and the world was ours to move forward with it. And I was actually, you know, going to meetings all over the place, you know, trying to cobble together, you know, what our next move is, and felt like a rock star. You know, suddenly I was in conversations with Gillian Muir at the South Bank Centre, feeling like a proper composer for the first time in my life. As I was you know, running around South Bank Centre and stuff like that. It was like a movie. People were literally walking at double speed through the streets with their mobile phone saying sentences like, leave the city. This was all a matter of days before national lockdown. And I just noticed people having frantic conversations on their telephones, walking very, very quickly through the streets. And everyone kept saying, oh, they're talking about a three-week pause, a three-week pause. I just remember thinking, no, this is considerably more serious. And as I was having the meetings and I was looking around, measuring up stages and stuff, I I just felt that this wasn't going to happen. And I had to internally process the whole time, how am I going to go back to this bunch of singers, actors and the orchestra and tell them that they have this beautiful little moment in their hand and they're going to have to let it go. So there was a huge amount of emotion in that and I think we felt it a little bit more because Abomination, at its core, was about a minority voice standing up to the majority through art. And through no fault of our own, um, that minority voice just as it's about to get heard, is being silenced again. As I was telling people about it, I had to resort to saying, well, we did test the patience of God. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know
2: I would have assumed that the loss of this show would leave Connor a broken man. I didn't expect his response.
1: The fact that that show existed of a moment means that while it it will be gorgeous to try and resurrect it you know in a sense as coronavirus goes on that moment has passed and I'm left with a very big choice of going you know do 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 we bring that back or you know do we try and rekindle what was there in that precious little moment and that precious little voice in the wilderness or do we say That was particularly of that time and what is really special is that it flourished in that moment and then that it shut you know is in a sense that the more honest reaction to the shutdown of it and is it the more i suppose is is that the theater of it Uh, that it was this beautiful little moment uh, that we're all incredibly proud of and that it's come and it's gone. I always had this complete inner struggle about the word success. What is success? I measure the success in the moment. One of the reasons I don't work in film and I work in theater is I love the fact that it's a puff of smoke. You know, I you make the push of smoke, you, you, you send out the smoke signal and then see if anyone comes and then you move on to the next one you know that's that's why we work in theatre I find something incredibly beautiful in that
2: maybe this is the most radical thing we can do now maybe the most appropriate way to honour the temporal and ephemeral nature of the art form is simply to let go to walk away into the new world and to leave everything behind us theatre is full of ghosts Every show, every stage, every play is a haunted space. And these new ghosts, the unfinished business of the last 12 months and all the ghost shows that possess us, maybe we need to exercise them. We're different people now. Our audience is different. The world is a different world to the one we shut the door on in March 2020. We're walking out of the wilderness, naked, naked clutching the little shards of ourselves that remain in our hands, and maybe all we can do now is start again, from scratch. And that's exhausting, and it's difficult, and it's hard, but maybe it's the most honest response to this moment. We now need to make theatre for the world that we are walking into, and make it for the people who will be waiting for us there, on the other side of lockdown
1: we spent so long on these babies um, when when do we put them to bed and when do we say it's had its moment let's make the next thing and perhaps coronavirus has been the most brutal way of saying that to people um,
2: yeah I mean you can smell in the air that none of us really are ready for the fact that the world is going to be completely different on the other side of this I mean, I don't think I've faced that yet
1: it's because it's a world that's completely unfamiliar to us, you know so until we see what that looks like I don't think there's anything that we can face.
7: I don't think I've let go I feel like this I feel like this might be the moment to be letting go of the show, you know <laughs> I feel like I' suddenly suddenly feeling it suddenly like, oh God wow,
8: and you know that's a really hard thing for any of us to come back from. We have to move forward. We have to find a way to move forward, or else we're gonna be stuck here. And if we don't find a way of moving forward, we're sunk. Now, we can't have gone through the year that we've gone through. We cannot come through this as human beings and just sweep it under the carpet and go, oh, well, that was, that was.
5: And then there's also that fear of, oh, do we go backwards again? Or is this it? Is this life going back to normal? Or whatever normal is?
2: But before we let go and walk off into the future, I really hope you'll forgive me if I take one final trip to a parallel universe. All right, Lee, are you ready to see a ghost?
4: Yeah, I think so. Feels weird.
2: And that parallel universe is platform 3A of Cardiff Central Station. There's
4: definitely posters at the end always as well. Okay.
2: As we approached the anniversary of theatres shutting down, I found out that the poster of the show I'd been making when lockdown happened was still up on the platform as if nothing had ever happened. Is that one over there? So I took a trip with oh, actor Lee Mengo, is who was phone? the lead actor in that no, production.
4: I can see it. No, oh no. It feels weird. <laughs> it's down here. Yeah, it's
2: to go and revisit our ghost show.
4: Here it is. Oh my God. Oh my God. Wow. That is so weird. i actually forgot how amazing it was. The poster. Yeah. Yeah.
8: Yeah, it's a real oh, work of art. feels
4: weird, him looking back at us. I know, that's you, isn't it? <laughs> wow. That's so weird. So that has been sitting there for like over a year now. Yeah. Wow.
2: Because they would have gone up probably yeah. around this time last year. Yeah, at
4: least. Do you know what? I didn't take the time last year to look at this. To me, it was just a flyer. Do you know what I mean? Whereas now this is like something quite special and sentimental to me. I love it that he's been here for a year <laughs> looking out thinking, when is it going to happen? I'm waiting. He's there. He's <laughs> waiting. He is waiting.
8: It's very weird.
2: It feels yeah. like walking into a different time. Does it bring back any memories about the sh- making the show or the time like, the days when we realised
4: that this wasn't going to happen. Yeah, definitely. It's, it, I have such weird feelings about the show because it was such an incredible, creative process. And not just the rehearsal process, for the months before, yeah. wasn't it? You know? And then... And then it just stopped. And it was that feeling of... I think we knew it wasn't going to go on within a couple of weeks. Yeah. But so we just never, never really knew. So... Learning to let go of it was a really strange experience. Yeah. I haven't let go of it either because I don't want to let go completely. Yeah. But it brings back so many memories. Weirdly, the the day that we knew it was going to stop really sticks out. I remember saying to one of the other actors, Matt Bulgo, I was like, now I know what it feels like to be, like, what those musicians felt like on the Titanic when it was going down and they kept playing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Because yeah, yeah. that day, everyone was like, we all sort of knew, sort of knew it was going to happen. And I remember there was me, there was about four or five of us trying to work out a costume change. Yes, that's right. And it was a quick costume change. And I remember us not quite getting it right. Yeah. And I, I it was just, we were going over it and over it. And this is like an hour before yeah. it was pulled, you know? Yes. And we were like, let's do, let's do it again, let's do it again, let's do it again. Everyone was going for it, yeah. you know? And I think that's why even then that pause, that shock of when Lauren said it's stopping was just like, yeah, we know, we know.
2: Maybe if there'd been some sort of anger or friction or it had been pulled for political reasons or budget reasons, it might have been kind of weirdly easier to say goodbye, but because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. It always felt like, I don't know, I always felt a bit like I never quite got, I don't know, I never quite got the narrative right somehow.
4: Mm.
2: Which, again, I think contributes to the lack of closure.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah, it, do- it does feel like that, though, doesn't it? It feels like there's like tentacles still out there. They've never, that's what I said, and I, I keep coming back to it, but just I, those images I have of the clothes, yeah. the costumes, these pieces of wearable art, yeah. just hanging somewhere. Yeah. It, you know, we've got six goat costumes somewhere, just, <laughs> just waiting. hanging, <laughs> waiting to come on. <laughs> Gathering dust somewhere, and, you know.
2: I've got no idea whether this shows back or not. Because that's
4: the truth as well isn't it? It may never come back. It may
2: never come back. Like you I kind of feel like I haven't let go of it Mm. and the kind of grown up adult part of my brain kind of goes well that's ridiculous you know, you just have to move on and have to carry on with your life. But there is a part and I think it's something to do with the fact that we got to tech I think there's something about the fact that we've we were stopped at the exact point where you start to see the thing really come to life. Yeah. So seeing all of that coming together and then having it taken away just to the point where you can just see it. Yeah. That yeah. That is the thing that's so um, difficult to let go of, I think, isn't it?
4: Oh, like it gives me like, period when I look at it. It gives yeah. me like a feeling of like pride and love and maybe words I can't even like, Explain, yeah, because we got there. Whereas if we've been told week one, I think I'd be like, Oh, yeah, remember that, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, that that would have been really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I don't feel like that, I feel like there's this piece of art without getting too bro, but there's no, that, like this piece of art somewhere hanging there,
2: yeah, that just
7: people haven't seen.
2: Wow. I mean, we will be, we're playing fast and loose with the word art because they were dancing toads. (laughs) You wanted dancing vaginas. I did want dancing vaginas. There was a whole point where people were going to jump out of massive dancing vaginas. (laughs) Art,
8: darling.
1: darling.
4: darling.
2: (laughs) Hiraith is a really precious word in the Welsh language. It's one of those magical and untranslatable words whose meaning is felt rather than understood. It's commonly used to mean a longing for home, and in particular a longing for Wales when you're away from home. But really, it also means a yearning, a loving homesickness, a feeling of deep, resonant nostalgia for something or somewhere, maybe even somewhere you've never been, maybe somewhere that never existed. I think that what we all feel right now is hiraith, for all the work, all the art, for the year we lost, for the parallel lives we never lived, the moments that we could feel in our hearts, but that disappeared into the ether. Is this a dormant volcano that's going to erupt, you know, Yeah. Does
4: it,
2: does it feel, does it feel full of potential or does it
4: feel like? No it does feel full of potential. It feels like the show feels to me in that it's hanging somewhere Ah. waiting to come out of the like the wardrobe and be worn you know (laughs) which is almost like this poster feels like it's just hanging there waiting and it'll come round again. I wonder what that feeling would have been like on the last night when you're a performer or when you're making something. It's very much about being in the moment and we don't know where those moments would have built to and led to. I think I know in my head I feel like it would where I know it would have got but we just never know. We'll never know. <laughs>
6: Freelancers Make is a Curtain Call and Freelancers Make Theatre Work co-production. Today's episode is part of a series, Ghost Shows, produced by Curtain Call and presented by Adele Thomas, written by Adele Thomas and Freddie Crossley, sound engineered by John Schwab, music by Freddie Crossley. Support for this episode and original concept for the Freelancers Make podcast from Sally Beck Whitman, transcription by Kelsey Acton. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Athena Stevens. Freelancers Make Theatre Work is a community for the 200,000 self-employed theatre makers in the UK. It is currently run by a team of incredible volunteers from around the industry. Follow us at Freelancers Make Theatre Work and follow the Curtain Call podcast for more episodes in the series of Go Shows. Thank you for listening.